Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world in the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we will talk about the 26th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, more pithily known as COP26 which is currently taking place in Glasgow, and we are going to assess how likely that is to deliver, and in particular, what role the European Union can play through its uh, Green New Deal, and whether it can actually help to deliver a grand bargain on green issues. I have an all-star cast to help us make sense of it. First up, we have Luca Fries, who is one of the co-chairs of ECFR, the director of the Danish think tank Europa, but most importantly, a former Danish climate minister who, in fact, was holding the gavel and presiding over a previous COP, COP15, which uh, famously uh, took place uh, in Copenhagen a number of years ago. Also down the line uh, from France, we have Susie Dennison, who is head of ECFR's European Power Programme. And she's also just co-written a report um, looking at the geopolitics of uh, the the Green Deal with our third guest, Alex Clark, who's a researcher at the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment at the University of Oxford, as well as a visiting fellow at ECFR. Thank you all for joining me. So why don't we start with this question about, about whether there's any hope on COP26. Look, uh, if anyone has the, the scars on their back from organizing COPs and seeing how they can be unpredictable and, uh, and difficult to, to corral, I think it's, it's you. Um, you uh, presided over uh, the famous COP15 in, in Copenhagen. If you compare the situation back then to where we are now, uh, do you think that we've, we've made progress as a, as a planet? Um, how do you think that, that they're doing? How do you think Alex Sharma's feeling at the moment? Well, I would say that um, the Groundhog Day syndrome is, is definitely the term I would use because many of the topics that uh, we are debating now in Glasgow are exactly the same that were on the table at uh, COP15, so in Copenhagen, also COP16 in, in, in Cancun. Uh, just take the very sort of totemic promise of delivering the $100 billion uh, from the rich world to, to the global south. We're still waiting uh, for that amount of money. We're also still waiting sort of for really, really ambitious sort of targets from, from many countries. So I guess you could say that... Uh, there is disappointment. You could also compare this. Maybe I saw someone did that the other day with a wedding uh, where you would have to say, I do now in Glasgow. But uh, I think maybe it's more precise to say it could turn out into a runaway bride, right? Because you have countries not even turning up. So number one from China, number one, obviously also from Russia and now also so Turkey. So it's very easy to write the, the failure column uh, about uh, COP, this, this COP, you could say. Uh, and with, But without falling into the trap of Boris Johnson's uh, various football metaphors, I saw the other day that uh, Team World was down 5-1, and now suddenly the other day it was uh, 5-3, and he was sort of saying that, well, maybe in the sort of in the extra time we could have the equalizer. I still would, however, argue that I do see some progress uh, at, this, uh, at this COP. I mean, I think... One should make sure not just to look upon the various sort of formal negotiations that take place, but also the various sort of 
deals, initiatives that take place outside the formal track of, of the COP negotiations. So take the pledge to slash methane. I think that's very important. Take also the promise to reverse uh, deforestation by 2030 and take also the very sort of concrete sort of deal that was done with, with South Africa concerning sort of their ability to get rid of coal. That was a big deal that was then struck by well, Germany, France, uh, Britain, United States and, and United States of America. And then I still also have hope for a, a text with regards to keeping the uh, 1.5 sort of uh, goal alive. And that's where Denmark and Grenada plays a, will play a key role. So of making sure that countries do not have to come back within five years time, but actually earlier to, to have their more ambitious pledges. But I admit this is sort of realpolitik that I'm now referring to. This is very much sort of looking upon the, the glass uh, half full instead of half empty. But that's probably, as you say, when one has spent uh, parts of, of my life also in COP negotiations, maybe you tend to sort of look upon what comes out of it as slightly more sort of important than how you actually should, because you know how difficult it is actually to strike a deal. So you're right. It is very easy to write the how COP <laughs> I read one this morning. <laughs> I just wrote one, yeah. Exactly. But my kind of meta argument is that whatever comes out of, of, uh, of COP26 on these sort of specific issues, what we've lost is one of the sort of big hopes that climate activists had, which is that we would move away from a world where people were just thinking about their kind of national interest towards the sort of common survival of humanity, that we'd move from a world of power politics towards one where you had international law um, and binding commitments and, and from a world where, you know, it's about emotion and, and uh, populist um, politics to one where the science will determine what we're doing. We do seem to be going in a different direction on all of those three fronts. The Kyoto Protocol, when that was originally signed, was very imperfect and involved a lot, of, a lot of the big countries in the world. But it was sort of an attempt to, to have binding commitments to uh, you know, have kind of legal frameworks rather than just power politics, um, and you know, was was very much centered around what what the scientists were saying. Um, whereas what we seem to have now post Paris is, is a kind of sense that different countries will come along and do more or less what they want to do. Everyone's published their own kind of plans, but it's been much more sort of classical intergovernmental framework than the sort of hopes that people had of global governance. Am I wrong to be so pessimistic, Alex? I should say that you're yes. on your way to Glasgow right now. So by the time people listen to this podcast, you'll be in the heart of the action. So uh, maybe you, you can send in some, some further um, thoughts at that stage. Um, thanks, Mark. I would like to be you know, uh, much more optimistic than you, but I think on the basis of the evidence so far um, and the increasing disconnect between uh, the science, which doesn't uh, unfortunately negotiate, and um, what is actually happening at COP26 and likely to happen in the next uh, few days, um, means that you know I, I think I'm also fairly um, pessimistic. But it it actually it makes plenty of sense that you know remember this is although this is an existential issue for for humanity at this point very clearly and everyone understands that it's not just about everyone's survival; it's about the survival of a few those less vulnerable who are able to pay for it and able to insulate themselves. And uh, it's it's very clear from work that's been going on for well over a decade now um, 
that there is a kind of huge uh, divide in, in vulnerability and ability to sort of adapt um, to what is now a, a, an inevitable transition to net zero. And the question really is, you know, how quickly can we do it and how much is it going to cost? Having said that, um, India's uh, net zero in 2070 pledge uh, was perhaps slightly unexpected um, and welcomed, I think, uh, not least because uh, some of the advanced economies, most of the advanced economies have committed to net zero or are negotiating net zero by 2050 um, and allowing India, uh, which has obviously an, an enormous population and a much lower income per capita in another 20 years seems reasonable at this point, at least as a starting point. And um, it's now the onus is on the rest of the world to sort of help India bring that date forward. Um, on China, uh, although there have been no new announcements and obviously President Xi is not there physically, um, this doesn't mean China's not serious in its intentions, and it, it seems to be at least a part of sovereignty thing. Uh, you know, we will decarbonize on our own terms and won't have our arm twisted by the international process, um, but that is in conflict with, with China's professed commitment um, to multilateralism, which is kind of repeated since uh, Paris. Um, and just briefly, uh, it's very clear at this point that pledges don't mean all that much uh, unless they're accompanied with an action plan and Australia has made its net zero pledge, but there's really nothing behind it um, uh, other than this, you know, essentially a sort of well-polished marketing slide deck. Um, but that also extends to other areas of the economy and you know, particularly what has been under the spotlight for years, but still hasn't made a lot of progress is um, how finance is going to contribute to this. And I don't mean development finance, I mean uh, private finance and financial hubs. Um, Rishi Sunak, um, the UK Chancellor, made a pledge today that um, London will be the first net zero um, climate finance hub. Um, whether that is achievable is one thing, but it's very clear that the existing regulatory frameworks, abilities to enforce this sort of thing, ability to understand what net zero means in finance is a very long way from where it needs to be. So whether or not we see a couple more kind of major pledges, um, it's uh, very little progress has been made at, at this COP so far and even in the, the lead up to it to actually make those things happen, which is very clear we need to very quickly start moving to do now. So one of the biggest shocks that we had when you were presiding over COP15, Lurka, was about the role of, of Europe in the European Union because we went into COP15 telling ourselves within the EU that we were leaders on climate. And then you had this kind of famous scenes where, where Europeans weren't even in the room when a lot of the important discussions were, were being made. Um, Susie, you've just written this policy brief together with, with Alex and another visiting fellow, Matt Engstrom, uh, with the title, How the EU Can Help Deliver a Green Grand Bargain. What role do you see for the European Union in COP26? Are we um, actually really in a position to deliver anything, or are we as peripheral now um, as we were back in in COP fifteen uh, as a political entity? Well, um, I think I think uh, we're somewhere between the two. Um, but I think that what's important when thinking about European green leadership, as well as when looking at the kind of uh, glass half full, glass half empty question about COP itself is to look at the long game. And um, listening to Luca and Alex's responses, one of the reasons, apart from my natural optimism, um, why um, I don't sort of totally buy into um, Mark's quite sort of scary view of the way the world's moving on, is that I actually think that a lot of the solutions um, are going to sort of start to come 
through people looking, countries, sorry, looking at um, the climate question through the prism of nat national interest. And what I mean by that is that, you know, regardless of the fact that progress um, against uh, the, the current Paris targets is disappointing, um, the transition is starting to happen. Um, you know, the European Union has laid out in the Green Deal and then the Fit for 55 package, um, its plans, as Alex has been laying out, um, uh, a number of um, countries now are coming forward with um, uh, uh, commitments to, um, to, to, to net zero, um, you know, not necessarily all at the pace that we'd like to see, but things are starting to move. And what that will mean is that for all um, countries, their dependencies um, for energy supplies, for, for tech, um, to, 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 uh, all of the sort of the tools they need to, to swim in this new sea, um, will start to um, uh, will start to change, and 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 the sort of the, the, the these sort of this day to day evolution um, will will start to mean that um, in order to uh, to sort of to guarantee um, stable energy supplies, um, we are going to have to start to think about energy security beyond um, the traditional carbon um, uh, carbon based fuels. Renewable energy is going to have to become part of that. When we're thinking about our essential supply chains, um, the, the natural resources um, uh, uh, that, that we need for green tech, um, uh, the, the access to the innovation um, is going to be have to part of, have to be part of what that definition of what is critical um, to keeping our countries running are. And so I think this is where um, you really can become a genuine climate leader because we have relationships with so many um, uh, countries um, that go very much beyond the sort of siloed climate conversation, um, but you know their relationships based around trade, their relationships based around um, uh, the development question, um, and and so in a sense, it's this it's this broader toolkit that Europe can bring to there that will start to bring kind of real meaning to um, to European climate leadership. So in a sense, I think you know we have to be patient beyond COP. Um, but what we've tried to argue in our Green Grand Bargain paper is that um, there is a real role for, for Europe um, to play in, in taking climate out of the climate box for the next period. So, Alex, what do you guys actually mean in concrete terms by a Green Grand Bargain? Uh, it's a great question. And, um, and Susie makes excellent points. Um, to turn to, to Europe's uh, kind of position in amongst all of the kind of current developments, what we mean by this is essentially, as, as Susie said, perhaps for the first time, it's now very clear that um, going green, uh, removing um, sources of emissions as soon as possible is now in almost every country's unilateral interest. And part of the problem is, uh, is the kind of policy making frameworks and cost benefit analysis frameworks that governments use to make uh, decisions and design policies. But on top of that, Although the although the EU is sort of further ahead than um, uh, some of the kind of other major economies globally, um, it's also a relatively small and shrinking proportion of global emissions, roughly eight percent. Sorry, um, at the moment, what that means is, is if if Europe is going to make a significant difference, it needs to uh, not only work with the rest of the world, but uh, actively use its own progress to help support that. Um, now, this is this. 
is an optimistic story um, because you know Europe has some of the financial and regulatory firepower, including the Brussels effect and including um, its sort of development finance tools to make a real difference um, in helping some of the kind of large developing economies that are still dependent on coal, for example, to sort of uh, adopt a different pathway. Isn't the biggest effect through our market and through the idea of carbon pricing and carbon border adjustment mechanisms? Exactly. There you go. There's the the buzzword of of the last few months. So the the carbon border adjustment mechanism or CBAM that uh, has been proposed by the EU um, obviously has, has... created a significant diplomatic backlash and the EU will have to tread very carefully to avoid um, just generating more problems. People who don't talk about CBAM every day, the idea is that we should set a price for carbon and then well, look at different sectors at uh, how much carbon is, is being generated in making different products. And if it's, if it's high, that you then tax it to bring it so that you internalize the the costs, um, uh, which could essentially mean huge tariffs against countries that have large carbon emissions, which are mainly what in, in China, Ukraine, lots of African countries. Is that right? Is that good? Uh, yes, exactly. So, I mean, the, the EU has had an internal carbon price for some time now. And uh, one of the reasons that uh, the border adjustments being proposed is to ensure that there's a level playing field between European industries and, and those producing competing products, except with you know higher carbon footprint. In practice, it's going to be very difficult to, to implement um, a system like that. But uh, optimistically, um, it's very clear that some sort of uh, extension of existing carbon pricing mechanisms is going to be very helpful in guiding the transition, although maybe at this point not um, not as necessary as it once was. Um, so to, to the extent that uh, the carbon board adjustment makes itself irrelevant by helping other countries um, move towards carbon pricing regimes, that could be a real plus, but it's a very delicate uh, diplomatic balance to strike. But the grand bargain is basically that you'd have sticks like the border adjustment mechanism and then carrots like attempts to, to help countries um, own transition through the, all the different tools that you're talking about, the A, technology transfers, other kinds of investments. Yeah. Yeah. Which in the past has not been particularly forthcoming despite a lot of promises. So you look at, yeah, that's one of the questions. You were saying how back in Copenhagen, we were promising hundred billion, which is like, anyway, I mean, I'm not a climate um Economists, but they say that's a laughably small amount anyway. Even if we were able to do it, the the, um, the transition of, of uh, you know will cost trillions, not a hundred billion every every year. Um, to what extent do you think that the this is a kind of realistic idea of Europe de- delivering a green grand bargain? I think I mean that Europe is is far more active, and that is definitely a, a big change compared to to COP fifteen in in Copenhagen. I mean, Copenhagen. I still remember that we spent about a week among ourselves, so the European sort of member states debating. Okay, what should we do? Should we come up with a proposal doing this or that or whatever? And then suddenly the door opened, and somebody came in and said, "Well, ooh." United States of America, <laughs> and then also South Africa, China, and Brazil had just agreed upon what basically then became the Copenhagen Accord. And we could do absolutely nothing except sort of then signing and saying, okay, that's what we're going to do. So there was basically no European influence at that time. Now I see a far more active European Union at the negotiation table, but also 
sort of striking various sort of agreements. I mentioned the one with, with South Africa. However, I think and this will not be a problem with Glasgow, but I think that will be a problem afterwards that at a time where we have Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, but also others acting as sort of superstars at, at Glasgow, sort of saying, well, fit for 55, then you can sort of read the, the newspapers and then you can see the major rollback taking place even in Europe because of the energy prices. I mean, now there's debate about whether nuclear should be sort of regarded as a, as a green technology. You have also at the COP, actually, Poland saying more or less the same as India was saying the other day that, well, if we have to sort of step up our sort of various game with regards to carbon reductions, then we need to have more money. So I think Europe is also a very sort of interesting case study where the you have to watch sort of for the actual sort of game plan with regards to living up to the various promises. And even there, Europe has, has challenges. So maybe it's not that surprising that other regions have challenges as well. Just two fingers on that. I think the other kind of reason why Europe is um, is looking at this differently this time around is because the the realities of the um, of, of the transatlantic uh, relationship are sort of coming home to roost. And I think there is a sense that we do have to kind of future proof, the current fragile consensus um, that we can see that is in part born um, uh, this year of the Biden administration's kind of re-engagement with the climate game. But I think there is a real consciousness that we can't assume um, that all things will remain as they are um, politically um, uh, in in various different power centres involved in um, delivering this grand bargain, which is why I think that um, Europeans may feel they, they need to play more of a role this time around. So if all of your dreams come true and we're having a, a podcast at uh, COP27 and talking about how transformative the European role was at COP26, what do you think that we will be proudest of? Well, I hope that we will be able then to deliver, I mean, this this text with regards to making sure that we keep the 1.5 degree Celsius goal alive. I mean, that sounds very technical, but it's extremely important that we have phrasing there in the text, which then clearly says, well, within two years time, countries have to come back and then step up their game. I think that is really vital. Uh, and that's sort of what I'll be looking out for once we have the, the final sort of text uh, from Glasgow. What about you, Alice? Um, I'll go for something very specific. I think um, a very clear statement on the role of gas in the transition is is really needed at this point, not just because it's a source of methane, but because we've left it too late for gas to be a realistic bridge. We need a you know, clear commitment from countries that are either gas-based or coal-based to move directly to renewables. Um, and unfortunately, the, the, the oil and gas industry has been very successful in kind of pushing against this and calling for carbon capture and storage, which still has not been demonstrated at scale. And that to me is one of the biggest threats. So if, if the EU can internally figure itself out to the extent that it can make a statement on gas, I think that would go a long way. And how on earth do you think that's possible when we're going through a massive energy crisis and, and that's the number one issue, cost of living, where people are desperate for more gas rather than less? Absolutely. Very, very difficult, but um, it doesn't make it any less of, a, of an imperative. Um, so, you know, the EU's made big commitments uh, to investing in a hydrogen economy, which will take some time to build up to the scale necessary, but it needs to, um, you know, keep its foot on, foot on the gas in that direction, but also have a clear plan for um, moving out of gas, not just domestically, but in its foreign projects and investments. 
I think people are going to really miss the, the metaphorical richness of the COP process if, uh, if we do manage to solve the climate crisis. But Susie, what are you looking for as a, an output, apart from all the great metaphors that we can get out of, out of COP? Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm looking for Europe to take responsibility for pulling us through the inevitable post-COP slump. Um, I'm looking for um, uh, us to take the reins through the period where um, uh, inevitably uh, the, the climate community citizens generally are disappointed with the results of um, COP and um, uh, for, for the European leaders to kind of to start creating facts on the ground through um, clear um, and high profile implementation of the um, uh, of the Green Deal um, and and sort of starting the conversation about what are the what are the projects, what are the investments that are going to make the difference to um, to making the Green Deal a reality. Okay, well, we will come back, I'm sure, at COP27, and we can see how many of these things actually happened. Um, We've got one thing left to do on our bookshelf segment. Obviously, everyone's bookshelf should contain a printout of the seminal policy brief, which Alex and Susie and Matt Engstrom have written um, which we will put a link to on our, on our website. Um, looking at, uh, at Europe's role in the, the green grand bargain, but what else should people have on their bookshelf? What's what's on your bookshelf at the moment, Luca? Well, obviously the paper that you mentioned, and uh, I can also recommend uh, a link, which I also hope you'll put on your podcast, with Susie speaking at an event uh, yesterday, presenting uh, the paper where also the Danish Minister for Climate Change uh, spoke. But uh, otherwise, I'm reading a book called The Land of Hope, and it's not a book about uh, COP26 because it's a book about Germany. It's called Hoffnungsland, eine deutsche neue Wirklichkeit. Isn't it Olaf Scholz's book? It's definitely Olaf Scholz's book. And it's, it's quite striking because it's the only book he's written. And it's also the only book that you can read about Olaf Scholz because there's no biography out there. So maybe that says, tells you a bit about sort of the people did not have high hopes for Olaf Scholz to become chancellor, but now he will become chancellor. So it was a good idea to, to read up on that, to read that book before I, I travel to Berlin next week. So I'm sitting in Berlin at the moment and in fact was in the in Scholz's finance ministry yesterday talking to a lot of people there and they're, they're definitely looking forward to the future with a lot of Hoffman at the moment. Um, Alex, what's on your bookshelf? Uh, two things. Uh, one that I'm rereading, Collapse by Jared Diamond, one of his lesser known uh, books. Uh, not, not because I'm you know, a doom monger, but because it's actually very informative on uh, you know, past examples of when civilizations have peaked and, and, and fallen apart very quickly. Um, the other thing, which is much more optimistic and, and I'm afraid a little bit more technical, is a, a paper by released by the Institute for New Economic Thinking at Oxford called Empirically Grounded Technology Forecasts and the Energy Transition. Um, it's a fairly dry title, but what it's showing is that if you, um, if you actually look at the data, um, the, the costs of specific renewable technologies, particularly solar, um, it should be expected to fall much more quickly than uh, you know every major institute in the last twenty years has suggested every year, um, and therefore that the um, the uh, net zero transition will not just be cheaper, but will be cheaper by a long way compared to um, the status quo, and that's without even considering the public health costs and, and climate costs and so on. So it's a reason for optimism, um, I think. Okay, what about you, Susie? 
I'm going to stay with the theme of hope and recommend um, a piece by um, the Greek Prime Minister Mitsotakis in Politico this morning, arguing there is still a way out of the climate crisis. Um, it's not Pollyanna-ish. It does bring together the kind of um, the, 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 the social challenge of the climate um, crisis, the urgency, um, uh, with the fact um, increasingly member states within even the European Union are feeling um, severe impacts of climate change now. Um, but I think it's uh, the right sort of message for, for the conversation that we've been having, um, because uh, we we need to stay focused on the fact, fact that there do have to be ways forward. Great. Well, I think I should write a few more columns talking about how everything's going to fail to bring out these great feelings of hope from my from my colleagues um, seems to be having a, a, a good stimulating effect. Um, it's been wonderful talking to the three of you. Uh, we'll put up links to all the publications that we mentioned, as well as all the work that ECFL has been doing on uh, on the Green Deal and on climate on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do feel free to let other people know about it by writing about it on our social media page or yours, but above all heading to whatever platform you can use to download the podcast on and giving us a positive review and a five-star rating. But for now, from Luca Fries, Alex Clark, and Susie Dennison and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor this week is Alessandra Thompson. Thank you very much. Thank you.